John chapter 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of uh, Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you, you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his, his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many their nets was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked, asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that this testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This is God's word. Aidan, thanks very much for reading. And uh, good morning again, everybody. Um, we are in the final chapter of John's Gospel. We've taken a, a slow amble through it, I gather from Matt, over the last few years, dipping in and out of John's Gospel. So we're finally there in John chapter 21. Uh, do keep uh, the Bible open on that page. We'll be looking at it quite closely. And if you've got a, a service sheet with you, there's an outline of where we're going in there. So let me pray as we begin. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again that these words in the Bible are your words. Thank you that they are inspired by your spirit and therefore trustworthy. Thank you that they speak into our lives with power, with significance, with uh, capacity to change us. And we pray that you'd be doing that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, have these words ever gone through your head? If they really knew me, they wouldn't let me do this job. Or if they really knew what I'm like, they wouldn't let me in here. Or if they knew the thoughts that have been going through my mind, they wouldn't give me this role or that position or allow me to serve in that way. I guess thoughts like that plague a lot of us a fair bit of the time. Uh, Sometimes it's just a a strange, vague feeling of guilt. I was reading the other day about something called imposter syndrome. And apparently that's that's what that is. Uh, One of the latest fashionable syndromes to take to your psychoanalyst about your troubles at work. Uh, If you always feel like a fraud, even when you're not, if you always feel as if you're going to be exposed, even when there's nothing to be exposed, uh, then that's you. You've got imposter syndrome. Uh, I get that. Uh, maybe I need to book an appointment with Jal or somebody and, and get that seen to. But I'm one of those people that can't walk through customs at an airport without feeling guilty inexplicably. And it, it gets worse and worse. These days I have to walk several times a week past the American embassy and past those guys standing there holding their machine guns. And I can't tell you how much effort it takes to not look suspicious as I walk down there. I don't know what it is. It's not the guns that put me off. It's, I, I don't know. Um, so sometimes it's fake and we need to kick ourselves out of it. Um, but sometimes it's real. And I wonder if you ever feel that way about serving in church, serving Jesus. Do those same words sometimes go through your head? If they, if they really knew me, they wouldn't have me doing this. They wouldn't have me serving coffee if they knew the thoughts that had gone through my mind last week. They wouldn't ha- let me do the PA or be in the band, if they knew the status of my spiritual life. They wouldn't let me read the Bible at the front. They wouldn't let me lead the service or, or preach, for goodness sake, if they, if they knew what had been going on. And so you come and you serve and you feel like a fraud, like an imposter. And as far as you can tell, it's not a, a syndrome, it's real. And you're serving, but you don't feel fit to serve. And you're not sure how long you'll get away with it, frankly. Maybe other people in the church haven't noticed it yet, but of course Jesus knows. He knows everything. He knows you. And at times that can be a very uncomfortable thought. Or maybe for these reasons you don't serve at all. You don't volunteer for the welcoming or the PA or the coffee or the kids in creche. You'd probably be very good at those things, but uh, precisely because you feel that you would feel like a fraud, an imposter, uh, you feel that your heart's not in in the right place, and you look around and you see what seems to be a very spiritually sorted bunch of people on the outside, and you just feel you're not in the same place. Serving Jesus would be hypocritical. You would be a fraud if you signed up. And maybe one thing, one day things will change and you keep holding on for that day when things will change, but they haven't yet. And so for the time being, you, you keep your head down. Now, if any of those kinds of thoughts are familiar to us, then this last chapter of John's gospel will be of great interest. Uh, at first, it reads like a bit of an add on. 
Uh, chapter 20 that we reached last week has that fantastic sequences of appearances of Jesus risen from the dead. Uh, Thomas falls at Jesus' feet, proclaims him Lord and God, and we get the great purpose statement of the whole of John's gospel in chapter 20, verse 31. John, writes, John says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Great triumphant words to to ring in our ears, the challenge to put our trust in Jesus and and have life through his victory over sin and death. And uh, the screen fades after that that final scene in John 20, and we're expecting the credits and the title music to roll and the house lights to come on so we can go out and serve Jesus. But it doesn't happen. There's a new scene. And we're transported from Jerusalem to the Sea of Galilee, Uh, The Sea of Tiberias in verse 1, same place. And it's bizarrely quiet after all of that hectic activity in Jerusalem. Uh, The crowds are gone. Time just feels as if it's slowed down when you get into this chapter. And there's seven disciples of Jesus there fishing. And I don't know about you as we read, it seems there's a slight sense of aimlessness, maybe listlessness. In verse 3, As if the disciples don't really know what to do next. Peter says, uh, I'm going out to fish. And the other disciples say, good idea, we'll we'll go with you. And they spend a fruitless night out on the lake, catching absolutely nothing. And here's the thing, they, they knew Jesus was alive, and that was a source of great joy. And we saw that at the end of chapter 20. But these are the same disciples who deserted Jesus in that crucial hour. That hasn't changed. This is the same Simon Peter who at one stage had the bravado to declare that he would lay down his life for Jesus. But then when the crunch came, he denied knowing Jesus three times. So for the disciples, the joy of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and his triumph over death was mixed with this bitter memory of their own failure, particularly Peter. And he must have wondered, can can Jesus use me after that? Am I fit to serve or would I just be too much of a fraud, too much of an imposter? Uh, Deserters of the British army in World War I were were shot at dawn. Jesus may be more forgiving than that, but how can this bunch of deserters and deniers possibly still be wanted for service in his kingdom? And so with all those questions swirling around, Jesus comes to meet them. And at at first, in the half-light of the early morning, uh, uh, they they don't see him. He's he's quite a a way away on the the shore. And he calls out to them, try fishing on the other side. And they presumably take him to be a sort of random bystander, another fisherman uh, taking a bit of interest and offering some professional advice. So they've had such a fruitless night, they they just, what the heck, let's try it. Throw the, the net in the other side. And the resulting catch is so utterly enormous that instantly they twig. John says to Peter, it's the Lord. Peter dives in, swims a hundred yards to the shore, and the others manage to drag the boat with these, uh, this enormous net full of fish, uh, dragging behind it. 153 fish, verse 11 says. Now, by the way, there have been endless attempts to figure out if there's a hidden meaning behind 153, uh, you can just imagine what sort of things have been written about that. Uh, none of the explanations for my money are, are remotely convincing, so don't worry about any of that stuff. It's, uh, I think it's just simply a matter of John recording history. He was there. This happened. Somebody said, 
this is, this is a, some sort of record. Some, count the fish. There were 153. It happened. Um, and so these, these rather listless, aimless disciples who, who aren't sure that they can be used again by Jesus are welcomed to breakfast by him. And as we go through, we'll see that they're fed and they're restored and they're commissioned. Commissioned to go and serve despite their failings. So let's quickly run through those things and then apply that all to us. First of all, verses 1 to 14, they're fed. This is a, a beautiful picture of welcome and provision and hope from the master who they'd let down so badly. Come and have breakfast, says Jesus. And breakfast is, it's the meal of a new day, isn't it? Um, in John's gospel, there are times of great darkness. And in, in those times of darkness, it's, it's times of betrayal and death and ignorance, like that late evening darkness of the Last Supper. But now it's a new day. The sun is coming up and it's breakfast. It's hope. And there on the shore of the sea, Jesus has a barbecue with his disciples, with some fish already cooking for himself. And he invites the disciples to join them and bring some of that uh, enormous catch to add to it and and cook it for themselves. And uh, I don't think this is about the disciples being fishers of men. That's one connection you might be tempted to make. But that line isn't recorded in John's gospel. It's in the other gospels. This is just about being fed by Jesus. Here's Jesus welcoming these exhausted, weary, failed disciples into his alfresco kitchen. And there's something um, very appropriate about that, isn't there? Because uh, this meal outdoors by the sea is in Jesus' kitchen. The fish are his. The, the, the lake is his. Everything's his. The bread is his. The coal that he's cooking it on is his. It was always his. When you think about it, when Jesus calmed the waves on Galilee, well, of course he can, because it's his. This is the same Jesus who fed 5,000 with just five loaves and two fish, who provided wine out of water for a wedding. And not even the resources of the royal house of Windsor could do that. I've obviously got to ref- get a reference in somewhere. It's only the first. Um, Jesus is, is, is the great provider whose storehouse is, is absolutely unlimited. His wealth and his treasure puts all of that pageantry that we saw on Friday in, in the shade. All those glittering carriages, the parade of riches, the, uh, the priceless bespoke Bentley limousines that rolled down the mall towards um, Buckingham Palace. This beachside barbecue by the Lake of Galilee is a window into Jesus' fathomless wealth and endless generosity. And his arms are open in welcome to these men who tried to follow him and failed. Now, you might think, if you're clear on what the gospel is as a Christian, that this should be unnecessary. Jesus has died on the cross to to win forgiveness for sinners. The transaction has been paid. The deal has been done. So surely these guys should just get over their insecurities and, and move on. There's a message to take to the world. And surely they should just get out there and do it. But that doesn't seem to be quite how it works here. Jesus doesn't just pat them on the back and send them packing to do their job. We're not supposed to just come to Jesus and do the forgiveness deal, do that transaction, and then walk away. When we come to the cross for forgiveness, it's not like 
just walking into a shop, giving a new voucher, collecting your free food, and then walking away again. It's more like being welcomed into a household, Jesus' household, where he will provide for us and feed us and give us everything that we need forever. It's the difference between, here it comes again, a day visit to Buckingham Palace and being part of the royal family for good with all of those ongoing benefits. There was that um, moment in the wedding service where Prince William vowed to Kate, all of my worldly goods with thee I share. That's quite something, isn't it? That means a little bit more in terms of uh, worldly goods than when I said it to Tree. Um, uh, Sorry about that. And um, for Kate, that wasn't just the transaction of a moment. It wasn't just a deal struck that she should just walk away from. It's a promise of ongoing provision, her being part of that family that we hope and pray she'll benefit from for, for the rest of her life. Coming to Christ and finding his provision at the cross is... Like that, it's something that we benefit from every day for the rest of our lives. We're in because of the cross. We're members of his household. We sit at his table. We eat of his food, just as Peter and Thomas and uh, the rest of them did. So first, having this breakfast with Jesus means being fed by him. And we'll have a look in a moment about what that might mean daily for us. Secondly, it means being restored. And here we're looking at this uh, conversation with Peter that happens in the middle of the chapter. You you get a a hint of Peter's state of mind in verse 7. When he first realizes Jesus is there on the shore, on the one hand, he's so thrilled to, to, to see him that he can't wait for the boat to drag itself to shore. He jumps overboard and swims to Jesus himself. But did you note his slightly bizarre behavior in that verse? Verse 7, before Peter dives in, he wraps his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off. Now, you've got to ask, who does that? Who puts their clothes on to go swimming? That's just a little odd. Um, Until you realize that I think Peter's probably feeling a bit self-conscious about this meeting with Jesus, this conversation he's about to have. He's presumably been shirtless, working on the, the boat, hauling nets. But there's something in him that makes him want to feel more presentable before Jesus. He's, he's guarded. The fact that he, he'll turn up to Jesus soaked to the skin doesn't seem to enter his thoughts. And he just wants to cover up. So his denial has left him feeling fragile, unworthy, uh, potentially unwanted by Jesus. And his excitement at seeing his Lord is tinged with that anxiety about what's going to happen. Is he the fraud, the imposter that he feels? What, what kind of words will Jesus have for him? Will they be words of mercy or will they be words of condemnation? So in verses 15 to 17, the moment comes and Jesus turns to Peter and asks him a question. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? In other words, um, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Now, at that question, Peter, I guess, would have remembered with humiliation and embarrassment the kind of rash promises he used to make. Uh, We said he promised that he'd lay down his life for Jesus. He also promised once that even if everyone else falls away, he would stick with Jesus. He would stand firm. Now, that pride, that bravado has, has gone. But he does love Jesus 
And all he can say to Jesus is, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my lambs. Jesus still has plans for Peter, still has a major role for him in caring for the people of God. But before we get to that, the conversation isn't over. A second time, there's that same interaction. Peter, do you love me? And I guess the second time, maybe Peter was a little more hesitant, less sure of himself. Yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. Take care of my sheep. And then Jesus asks a third time, Peter, do you love me? And suddenly, the reality of what's going on in this conversation dawns on Peter. Because, of course, three times he denied knowing Jesus even as Jesus was being beaten by those corrupt officials during his trial. Three denials and now three questions. Three opportunities for Peter to declare his love for Jesus. No wonder in a way Peter felt hurt by this. But he needed to say this. Jesus needed to ask him this. And the others around him needed to hear it if he was going to be restored to his role as serving the church. In a sense, this is a a final aspect to the breaking of Peter's pride. But at the same time, his moment of restoration in Jesus' gracious hands. Jesus isn't being cruel here. He's not taunting Peter. He knows Peter's heart. And he knows that Peter loves him and that this needs to be said. Now, I don't know about you. I'm struck by Jesus' question. He doesn't come to Peter and, and ask him, are you sorry for what you did? Or have you learned your lesson? Or uh, do you realize how much you hurt me? He asks Peter, do you love me? It's intensely personal. It's the, the most penetrating question that Jesus could have asked. Do you love me? It's not the kind of question a judge asks or a lawyer or an employer or a, a master would ask. It's more the question of a, a hurt friend or a wounded lover. But it's not for Jesus' benefit. As Peter says, Jesus knows what is in Peter's heart. Jesus knows everything. He knows that Peter loves him. This is for Peter's benefit. He's already forgiven, of course, by means of the cross. But here Jesus wants him to express his love face to face and in front of the others amongst whom he would take that that leading role later. Now, in one sense, seeing this written down in John's Gospel helps us to trust Peter He was a prominent figure in the early church, responsible for many of the important decisions of the early church, leading some of its early missions. And we have his writings in the Bible, the letters of 1 and 2 Peter and uh, Mark's gospel based on his recollections of Jesus. So we need to know that this man is somebody Jesus wants us to trust. But also, we are very much like Peter. I remember when I first served on a summer camp team. Uh, quite a long time ago, I was a little bit taken aback on the training day that the, the overall leader ran. The overall leader sat us all down and told us that none of us deserved to be there. And uh, I don't know, we all sort of looked at each other and thought, what a way to start the day. Um, but, but he was right. We were all a bunch of Peters. People who let Jesus down in all kinds of ways. People who continue to let Jesus down in all kinds of ways. And yet, in his amazing mercy, God forgives and restores. Now that is true of all of us here who trust in Jesus at Christchurch Mayfair. However we serve the church, 
we're not actually worthy of it. If we serve coffee and refreshments by the door, we don't actually deserve that privilege. If we play in the band or operate the PA or run the youth group or move the chairs or even clean the toilets, we're not spiritually up to that job of serving the church in any capacity. Certainly if we preach or lead in any way, we're a long, long way from being adequate to the task. But God is gracious and Jesus restores I was reading recently about uh, a Cambridge church minister called Charles Simeon. Uh, he was there in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And as an old man, he looked back over 54 years of ministry in the same church where God had used him powerfully. But he was deeply aware of his own failings, his own sins. And uh, here's what he wrote in his old age. He says, I have had deep and abundant cause for humiliation. But I have never ceased to wash in that fountain that was opened for sin and uncleanness or to cast myself upon the tender mercy of my reconciled God. Simeon said, repentance is in every view so desirable, so necessary, so suited to honor God that I seek it above all, the tender heart. The broken and contrite spirit, I feel this to be safe ground. Here I cannot err. I am sure that whatever God may despise, he will not despise the broken and contrite heart. So this breakfast with Jesus means not just being fed, but being restored. Peter is restored from denier to disciple again. Charles Simeon was restored time and time and time again from sinner to fruitful worker in God's harvest field. You and me, the sinners that we are, can be restored time and time again to the work that God has planned for us. And so this is the final part. The disciples are fed, they're restored, and finally they are commissioned to go and serve Jesus. This is verses 18 to 25. In a sense, all the disciples are being commissioned here, but uh, Peter and John are given very different expectations of what serving Jesus will look like for them. Uh, Peter, as we know, is asked to feed Jesus' sheep, in other words, to to lead and care for the church. And that wasn't his job alone. Uh, Jesus will always be the ultimate good shepherd of John chapter 10. And uh, all the other church leaders are Jesus' under-shepherds. And Peter himself wrote in 1 Peter, the letter later on, to church leaders in general, urging them to shepherd the flock that was under their care. This wasn't just Peter's task. But Jesus gives Peter some very specific instructions in verse 18. He says, Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This privilege of service for Peter would involve his death. That phrase, to stretch out your hands, in the first century was just a way of speaking of crucifixion. And according to the non-biblical historical sources we've got, Peter was crucified about 30 years after this conversation. Imagine carrying that knowledge around with you for 30 years. But before we feel too sorry for Peter, I wonder if there was a part of him 
that actually heard this as good news. Remember what Peter once said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And he utterly failed to do that. But now, the other side of the cross, having been fed by Jesus and restored by him, Jesus says to Peter, you will. You will do that. You can now. Because I've died for you first. Because Jesus has laid down his life for us, we can now lay down our lives for him without fear. And for some, many across the world today, that will be true. But not everybody will lay down their lives in uh, a literal sense, the way uh, Peter did. Uh, Peter asks Jesus about John, who's also walking nearby. And verse 22 is Jesus' rather enigmatic reply. Jesus answers, if I want uh, him, John, to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, we know that John uh, served Jesus in a very different way. He lived till old age. He served the church for a much longer time than Peter. Uh, John was the last surviving apostle when this gospel was written by him. And uh, he seems to have been unusually old for that uh, era of lower life expectancy. And it seems maybe strange rumors had been circulating about him. People had heard that Jesus had said something funny about John surviving until he returned. And these last couple of verses has John quashing that rumor. He doesn't want that kind of thing to be going around. Um, and John, just like Peter, is commissioned to feed the sheep. And this gospel he wrote was a major part of completing that task. So it's interesting, isn't it? There are major differences in the ways John and Peter will be serving the church. Peter's going to be persecuted and die relatively young. John will be living to old age, maintaining a, a writing ministry. But Peter is told very pointedly by Jesus in verse 22, what is that to you? You must follow me. That's interesting, isn't it? Our roles in following Jesus might be very different. There might be some who are up front in church, others more behind the scenes. Some might receive more public congratulation for what they do, others less so. Some might involve persecution and danger, and others less so. And in all of these things, we can easily, unhelpfully compare ourselves with others and wish that we had somebody else's gift, someone else's commission from Jesus. But Jesus would say to us, as he said to Peter, what is that to you? You must follow me. One of the most moving moments uh, a couple of weeks ago on the New Word Alive conference that many of our students and uh, myself went along to was an interview with uh, a man called Ben Kwashi. He was the Archbishop of Jos in Nigeria. And uh, Archbishop Ben spoke of the thousands of Christians in that region who've been killed um, by militant Islamist groups. And he described three vicious attacks on his own family where he escaped death several times himself, just by the skin of his teeth, by the, the, it seems, miraculous intervention of God. His wife was brutally attacked on one occasion and needed uh, uh, some very invasive surgery to recover from a near-fatal beating. And Archbishop Ben has the threat of death around him all the time. He said that he fully expects to be killed one day because he is serving Jesus. And at the end of that interview, um, Ben was asked whether he had a message for us Christians in the UK. And I don't know what you'd expect him to say. Many of us wondered if he would say something like, oh, you have it so easy. 
Or, you guys, you need to support us and be less complacent about suffering around the world. Actually, what he said was that he came to the UK and saw on television one of our politicians publicly ridiculing Christianity. And he was shocked. And he said, we have nothing like that in Nigeria. That must be very difficult for you. And he meant it seriously. He was concerned for us and the battles that we face in the UK. He recognized that our experience of Jesus' commission is going to be very different from his in Nigeria. There was no envy or disdain for us, just partnership in serving Jesus in different ways, in very different places. And what a great model for us. Let's not, even within the church, compare ourselves with others. I know how crippling that can be, comparing yourself unhelpfully with other people. Just be commissioned by Jesus and serve him in whatever way that means for you. So let's draw all this together at the end of this account. Uh, These disciples who'd failed Jesus so dismally by deserting him and denying him, We see Jesus meeting them, inviting them to breakfast, a breakfast they so desperately needed because in it they were welcomed back by Jesus, fed, restored, commissioned for the work that they thought they were now disqualified for. So if you know that feeling, maybe this morning, of feeling disqualified for serving Jesus because of your own failures, your own sins, then you can take enormous encouragement from this. Jesus will treat us the same way. We can have that breakfast with Jesus. We can have that new start. We can have it every day. We can come to Jesus and be fed and be restored and be commissioned. We can have that face-to-face meal with Jesus, which for us means listening to his words as he speaks to us in scripture, responding to them in prayer. If we're not doing that regularly, we will lack the assurance that we can serve him. We won't feel the refreshment of his food and his restoration and his commission. So I want to urge us to be like that vicar I mentioned, Charles Simeon. Apparently he hated getting up in the morning. Uh, And many of us can relate to that. I speak as one who identifies very strongly. He decided that he couldn't survive without reading the Bible and praying in the mornings. And so he decided that uh, every time he slept in, he would pay a little fine to his cleaner. (laughs) And uh, so he tried that. And the next time he found himself lying in bed, wanting to sleep in, it didn't work. Because he was lying there thinking, she's quite poor, she could do with the money. So he he carried on uh, sleeping in. So he he thought, well, that doesn't work. I know what I'll do. I'm going to throw the money into the river instead. And so that he did. But only once, because he was so horrified at the idea of being so wasteful. And from that that day on, apparently he was an early riser and managed to have his uh, restoring breakfast with Jesus every day. And that empowered his 54 years of ministry. And it'll empower ours too. So if it means throwing money in the Thames, just find a way. Find a way to take your breakfast with Jesus every day. Because as we come to Jesus in the Bible, we can do these three things. We can be fed. All that Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, we can see it there. And we can eat and eat and eat of it and be satisfied by his lavish provision for us. 
And we can be restored. The more we hear Jesus' words in the Bible, the more we'll see how he calls us back to himself, how he draws sinners to himself, how he asks us, do you love me? And longs to hear our response, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And we'll see the commission that Jesus has for each of us, how on page after page God calls each of us to follow Jesus, that he gives us unique gifts, yes, every single one of us who trusts in Jesus, every one of us, unique gifts, including you, no matter how unworthy you might feel this morning or at any other time. So go on, put a a breakfast with Jesus in your diary. Do it as often as you can, every day. Let him provide for you, and then you'll feel able to serve. And then serve. Volunteer for things. Do the coffee, do the PA, join the band, whatever it is. Do things with a grateful heart, free from the imposter syndrome, free from all that, of that fear of inadequacy because of all that Jesus has done for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so unworthy to even be here to take part in your kingdom work. And yet you have loved us so lavishly, so unconditionally. You have provided Jesus' death on the cross to take away our sin. And so here we stand, cleansed, ready to serve. Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp the reality of that gospel, grasp how wonderful it is to be made ready once and for all to serve in, in your kingdom and help us to keep coming back to you to be restored again and again and again for the rest of our lives. And please use us mightily, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.